You are listening to the Safety Heroes podcast, the podcast where we delve into the world of safety professionals and explore the critical role they play in ensuring every human goes home safely. Our guests are the unsung heroes and natural leaders of the safety space. If you're in the safety space or have no clue what happens in safety functions, this podcast is for you. Join us as we celebrate these heroes, hear their stories, and discover the human side of safety and make sure it's constantly evolving for the safety of our people. My name is Musa. I'm the founder and CEO of Pixera and your host for these episodes. Because when it comes to safety, every hero deserves a voice. So welcome to the Safety Heroes Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Matt Cox, the Deputy QHSE Director for Veolia in the UAE. Matt is based in Abu Dhabi and has an inspiring journey in the safety industry with over 32 years of experience in risk management, safety, and environmental protection. Matt, I find it fascinating to hear how professionals like yourself got into the safety field. Can you share a bit more about your personal journey and what inspired you to pursue a career in safety? Yes, certainly. First of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. My journey is a little bit twisted. I started off after my studies in the UK and I went into the retail environment, working for a local high street department store. And throughout my 15-year management career in the UK, I assimilated core knowledge of process. Everything in retail is driven by process compliance. And then you offset that with things like trading standards compliance, fire safety, you know, lots of legalese that gets your mind thinking about process. So when I was afforded the opportunity to come to the Middle East to join my family who'd been here for many years, it was a decision taken to start afresh, start anew, because the opportunities in the retail sector were limited in this region. They worked to a different marketing scheme. So I was fortunate enough to be afforded an opportunity in a safety position through various connections, through family involvement, etc. And since that time, I've decided to make best use of my time to challenge both myself and others in and around my sphere to better themselves through driving knowledge and experience, qualifications and exposure to different things. So I've been in the region almost 20 years now. So there's been significant growth both personally and professionally. And now I'm fortunate to be in a position to give back through my association with professionals' bodies like the International Institute of Risk and Safety Management, of which I'm a trustee currently. Thank you for that intro. I mean, the safety field can be very demanding. I think something we're trying to get out here is to understand when you're constantly trying to mitigate ongoing risks, what keeps you motivated and passionate about the work you do in ensuring safety? It comes back from absolute source career of day-to-day public interface with people. I gravitate towards people. I consider myself a a people person. And for all of my working career, whether it's people I interact with as members of the public or customers or stakeholders and employees and colleagues, the one thing that always goes on in the back of my head is that I'm dealing with humans. Everybody's got their own path and their own journey they've lived through, different experiences and exposures, but I always manage to equate the human condition. So I don't differentiate between different people, different levels of hierarchy, etc. I always try to put myself in the position of considering them as human beings. And that's the sole goal of HSE primarily is to preserve life. You know, if you think back to the basics of, say, first aid, it's to preserve life and promote recovery. In safety, we're ahead of that and we're trying to prevent injuries and ill health in the first place. 
I love it. I mean, it, especially in large organizations, you tend to forget that it's ultimately just about humans coming into work day in and day out. And if we reflect a little bit on, you know, we all know safety is a critical aspect in many industries, but from your experience, and you've been doing this for quite a long time, can you tell us about some time where you faced major challenges, especially while implementing safety measures or ensuring people's safety? In this region, more than some others, we are driven by having a transient workforce hugely multicultural employee base with you know upwards of nearly 200 different nationalities living and working in the region the huge challenge you face primarily is the language barriers between different organizations and employees but you've got different histories shared cultures be it religious be it national cultures different levels of risk perception what becomes an accepted behavior as the norm in one country is not acceptable in a different country you got me thinking about examples of where those challenges might manifest. And I remember maybe some 20 years ago, I went to do inspections in a welfare facility and I was shocked to see the state of the accommodation that the workforce were provided with. So I demanded this particular contractor at the time to install some brand new shower blocks to upgrade the facility, shall we say. And they duly complied and installed 36 brand new shower blocks for me. And then I revisited four days later and 33 out of the 36 shower blocks had been broken. And I looked at this and I thought, was it even possible that 33 out of 36 showers can be broken? And the reality was that the people who were using the shower had never seen a shower before. So they'd broken all the showers because they preferred to use just a tap and a bucket for their washing and ablutions. And it, it got me thinking about the baseline of different cultures and environments where people have come from. So this is a huge challenge in my environment when I first came into this region. All manner of other challenges we face primarily because of the infancy of HSE. It was an afterthought and therefore the competence that was inbuilt within the organisations was lacking. Historically, again, going back 20 years, if people came from, say, the Indian subcontinent and they were brought in to be a labourer or a steel fixer or a carpenter, and if they weren't particularly good at cutting wood straight or bending steel straight, etc., they would either be sent home or they would be given a different colour helmet and classified as, you're now the safety officer, because there was a requirement they must have a safety officer. And so there was no inbuilt competence of the safety profession in the region. So luckily that evolved. And then we started to see an influx of people with own country qualifications. And then when we recognized that maybe the own country qualifications weren't up to international standards, we started to see some standardization, like the advent of the NEBOSH certificates and things like this. And then over the last few years, the legislative bodies have driven to register safety professionals. So you get some checks and balancing about who is being employed to deliver safe systems of work to keep people safe. Everybody would be familiar with the notion of six P's, where proper prior planning prevents poor performance. I come from it from a different perspective, and I offset six P's, which should be embedded for all, with what I label as the five C's. And the five C's come down to the culture, which I discussed a moment ago about the backgrounds of people, and certification, and the high prevalence of, say, fake or own country certification, an understanding of competence. So competence is... is a key driver because people have this mistaken belief that if they've got, for want of another phrase, analogy, they've got a certificate, they must have some competence. Whereas most professionals would argue that competence is a blended sum of, say, experience, training, knowledge, all encompassing to drive overall competence. 
And then you've got the time served. In the UK, it would be called grandfather rights. So people that are time served over many years, they've never had an accident in their life. So they become complacent. We've always done it this way. We're not going to change. And those same self people who've been doing the same job for 10, 15, 20 years, invariably are the ones that potentially have the incidents and accidents. And again, the final C that we deal with on a consistent basis is the notion of compliance, because traditionally we've had a lack of management credibility. So we say we do this, but we don't drive it and enforce that it's lived and breathed in the workplace. So the compliance element is sometimes suspect. And that comes down to the biggest question that we face in this region, to my mind, is the question of management credibility. If you can honestly promote an organisation as having completed 25 million man hours without a single incident, for example, and then they have these huge major events celebrating the fact they've achieved 25 million man hours without an event, and then you look at how they've put together a scaffolding or a presentation stage, and the presentation stage has been put together in an unsafe manner. So you have to question the credibility of promoting millions of man hours without an injury when you know that the difference between a significant injury and a near miss is on occasion is luck. So there's lots of challenges historically for the region, primarily the blame culture that exists and non-reporting of unsafe acts or incidents because it looks good on the figures. Based on what you said now, there's so much to unravel in terms of the five C's. But to try to summarize this into maybe a single statement, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned through all this? Luckily, people have started to recognize that open and honest reporting and declaring of events is a positive. Treating failures as an opportunity to grow or learn is a positive. And we're fortunate that various organisations, be them professional bodies such as IIRSM in the region that are very active to promote safe systems and encourage dialogue, we are seeing change. And there's been a step change over the last few years to evolve the culture and embed HSC within organisations, which is a positive. Great. This is a good kind of a good step towards our next section. So if we think about best practices, in your opinion, what are some of the best practices in the field that organizations should adopt? I touched on previously the evolution of, say, the safety professional in the region from home country qualifications through to recognize international standards and then accreditation with government bodies, etc. One of the things when we talk about the general population in the workplace is that historically there used to be promotions based on seniority in age or time served within the companies, but there was never a competency-based approach. So people could start off as a laborer and then they become a charge hand after they'd worked for, say, five years with an organization. And then another five years, they become a foreman, another five years, a manager, and these sort of things. So I would advocate that people should, at source, adopt a competency-based recruitment model and have people that are fit for purpose at source through understanding the needs of the business and the qualifications that meets the requirements of that profession. And there are examples of some hugely successful programs where the better players in this region have introduced such things as trade schools, where before people are recruited or employed, they have skills testing. For example, overseas recruitment agencies, they're put through a program of pre-employment trade schools and assessments. So they know that the skills and competencies are embedded before they even mobilise to the region, which is a fantastic initiative. 
But as we are moving rapidly forward in time, we're adapting and adopting technology more and more in our workplace. So to upskill and drive competence, I'm a firm believer in the likes of uh, virtual reality and electronic-based learning platforms because you don't have to put people at risk to give them skills. If you put them to work and they're learning on the job, they're potentially exposed to hazards where you can create them a virtual world where they can be exposed to the same hazards without a physical risk to their person, which is a fantastic idea. So when it comes to the tools, the most open thing we need is active listening. And if you have active listening, it breeds collaborative communication and working. When we're talking advances in technology to have collaborative, real-time IT platforms, solution, an example, the Google suite, where multiple people can work on the same tools and documents together in a collaborative way, effective teamwork leads to achieving a common goal. So that has to be a win. But in my experience over the last 20 years, bridging the gap between the management and the shop floor is an essential component. So there's voices given to the employees because a lot of the employees know more about a given topic than the people that are empowered to oversee those activities. So representation from the shop floor in employee bodies, committees are essential components. Now, if I talk at a more strategic level, I would say that embedding a risk-based approach is essential for all modern future thinking organizations. Even if it's selective in terms of the personnel involved, engaging with learning partners to encompass risk management qualifications into the business as standard, to me, makes fiscal sense because it's not only profit and loss that we should be considered, it's risk as well. So the likes of RRSM, for example, they operate a risk essential course as an early starter. We've partnered with Nibosh to offer a certificate in risk management. All of these are entry-level qualifications that empower department heads or people with potential responsibility for the management of risk to understand the reasons behind their working practices. So these are current tools that could be used, but my own personal motto might be to never stop asking questions. That's of both yourself and others, because you never stop learning. So there's so much to unravel there. Just for a bit more context, what does the operation look like? So how many people, and, and you mentioned the region, I would assume it's the Middle East mainly with a focus on Abu Dhabi at the moment, right? Yes, that's correct, yes. How big is the operation? Like how many people are usually working? The employment model in the region is quite different from other areas of the world based on the availability of, of labor, the historical cultures and backgrounds of, of the workforce, pay scales, all these factor into how different organizations in different industry sectors may operate. If I take as an example construction, you might have a building site in the UK with maybe 200 persons deployed or maybe 300 persons deployed. Here, you might have the same project delivered and it will have a workforce of up, up to maybe three or 4,000. So there's an inherent increase in risk profile based on the sheer number of people employed and the amount of simultaneous operations. So the more moving parts in an organization, the more opportunity for risk to appear or hazards to manifest. 
So fascinating. It's like the experience you're bringing is so focused on a region and rightfully so every region and brings so many different risks and issues based on the culture and the majority of the workforce. What I'm hearing when you're talking about best practices, is a lot of work on competence, you know, using tools and technologies like VR, then collaboration between people in different pools, but ultimately giving workers a platform to speak up and a bigger risk appetite approach. One of the interesting aspects of emerging markets is when we talk about for example, legislative platforms. Without the inputs from other regions, other areas of the world that have embedded safety cultures or robust legislative platforms, sometimes you get a mixed match of legislation created out of amalgamations from standards, say, America or standards from Europe or you know, specifically the UK. So the consistency of legislation across the world is, is not necessarily embedded. Accordingly, that creates confusion. It can create inconsistencies in what good looks like. So reverting back to, for example, ISO standards and working towards management systems, integrating systems to comply with international standards, irrespective of local legislation, that has to be a starting point. So more and more organizations are driven towards ISO standard compliance, irrespective of the prevailing local legislation, because invariably complying with the requirements of international standards, typically you encompass the majority of legal requirements in a given organization, because the ISO standards have been driven over many, many, many years of development with certain histories of revisions so they had the exposure to different environments around the world to bring up what is achievable for everybody throughout industry, wherever they happen to be working. And I'm going to move a bit to a question that might be a bit more difficult to approach, but have you personally experienced or heard of an incident that resulted in a serious injury or worse in the workplace? We don't need to share names or details, but something that people can relate to and maybe learn something from. Unfortunately, in my career today, I have working knowledge or have been involved in significant injuries. Obviously, I can't divulge details, etc. But in a lot of instances, serious injuries can be attributed to primarily failure of management systems. But there's also the key component is the human condition. As we grow, we become so accustomed to the use of technology in our everyday existence that sometimes we stop thinking for ourselves. An example, people used to work in the mines. Going back 200 years in the UK, we had mines for, for the coal industry. And people used to take canaries into mine shafts. And if the canaries stopped singing, there was a presence of gas and people evacuated. And now, obviously, we don't employ uh, canaries so as not mm -hmm. to upset animal rights groups. So we have gas detectors. And this is where we rely on the gas detectors. But the equipment and the technology is fantastic. But what if the people don't take gas level readings? What if people aren't trained to use the gas level readings? People still, unfortunately, can get overcome by hazardous fumes or poisonous atmospheres because their lack of grounded training. And even worse, there's famous incidents that have occurred whereby people have been overcome by hazardous atmospheres and the rescue teams have found themselves also victims because they've jumped in to save their colleague and they've also been exposed to the same hazardous atmospheres. So now people are being far more transparent with their reporting. And the only way we can reduce future fatalities around the workplace, anywhere around the world, is being open, transparent and honest and treat such failures as learning opportunities. Because everybody that works in or around the safety function 
would be familiar with the notion of the Bird's Triangle, with the hierarchical approach where a certain number of near misses might lead to a certain number of first aid cases, lead to a certain number of medical cases, a certain number of LTIs, and ultimately maybe a fatality sitting on top of the iceberg. When you've got a more mature and robust system, you don't look at it as numbers on a page because numbers are very, very misleading. They could be indicative, but it can be a misnomer. So the more robust, mature companies, they try to typically look at reduction in hazard exposures at source. Rather than looking at the numbers holistically, they zero in on particular high-risk activities and they drive reduction in exposures to those particular scenarios, which could lead to the more significant events. And this is a, a very, very positive model to focus on behaviours and reducing exposure to hazards. There are numerous behavioural-based safety models. Different organisations make a living from looking at behavioural assessments in organisations to change culture. But you don't need especially to go to a, a consultant or a recognised specialist in behaviour-based approach. You can do it yourself if you have a vision as to what you're trying to achieve. And this is where I adopt a principle of trying to keep safety as jargonless as possible and keep it simple based on the acquired experience and education levels and the language challenges of the people I interact with daily. If I don't break things down into the simplest possible components, my message I deliver to other people is lost. Great. So moving into the future, what's the one thing you wish to see become the norm in safety? The obvious answer for any professional in the workplace with faults about HSE is to see zero accidents. Everybody promotes it, zero harm, zero accidents, zero fatalities. But with the best will in the world, because of the human condition, that's not necessarily realistic. So for my sake, what I'd like to see standardized as a norm globally is honesty and transparency. Honestly, there's so much to unravel here. I'm trying to hold myself back. But if you were to give listeners one last thing that you'd like them to take away from this conversation, what would it be? Never forget that you're interacting and dealing with humans. That's first and foremost. Never, yeah. ever assume that just because you're long serving that you know better than other people. You never, ever stop learning. On any given day of the week, situations, circumstances change, and there will always be people that you could listen to to learn more than you already know. And the worst thing any working professional can do is presume that they know something when they haven't got the core knowledge. Personally, I have far more respect for people that put their hands up and say, I do not know, than muddle through and trying to do things. At the very start of this interview, I talked about the progression of safety professionals in this region over the last 20, 25 years. And this is where the danger around complacency and understanding of competence comes in because people chase after certifications and think because they've got a certificate, they've got the inbuilt knowledge that comes with it. But you only gain a working knowledge of something by putting it into practice. So you may have all the qualifications that is on offer but unless you practice that skill, you don't have the core knowledge. So you never stop challenging yourself and you never stop asking questions.
One of the dangers is because of the dynamics in play with different regions around the world, qualifications can be equated to better opportunity, as an example. Hopeful better jobs or better pay scales. Now, when it comes to HSC, early promotion or early responsibilities being given to somebody without the core competence to back it up puts people's lives in danger. It's like remain curious, drop your ego and avoid getting complacent. Well, Matt, honestly, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Before we wrap up, where can people listening learn more about you and follow your journey? Obviously, I'm available on LinkedIn, which I can happily provide details of. But through RRSM itself, that's www.iirsm.org. Under trustees, you'll see my career profile and my career spotlight and bio as a working active trustee of the Institute. Honestly, this has been super informative. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you for listening to the Safety Heroes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to click follow. Until next time, stay safe.